you know, there's that classic phrase that we're all realists now. Well, I think we're all textualists now. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about textualism, the legal theory that prioritizes the literal text of laws over what might have been the intended outcome of the legislation. Proponents of textualism, like Justice Antonin Scalia, have argued that it prevents judges' personal opinions from coloring their decisions. We are governed by the laws that Congress enacts, not by the unexpressed intent of whoever wrote them. And if they meant up when they said down, that's their problem. I frankly, if the legislative history is utterly clear about that, too bad. Uh, We're governed by the laws. But as you'll hear, textualism is used in practice as a bludgeon by conservative justices to defang the laws they don't like and strengthen the ones they do. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have caused our nation's promise to fall substantially short, like a Ben Simmons free throw. Wow. (laughs) Get his ass. Yes. I am Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hi. I saw it all in person, folks. Game seven. there. Sixers, Hawks. What an experience to be around... Philadelphians, the most normal people in the world, while they watched their team collapse uh, in the public eye. I, everyone around me handled it really well. I'll, t- I'll just yeah, tell I you bet. that. I, I bet. bet. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one. Uh, uh, maybe we shouldn't talk basketball. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I can like just start talking basketball at any point. <laughs> it's a premium episode. This is what you pay for, folks. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'll tell you one uh, maybe unforeseen um, negative aspect of the the process, right? The mm-hmm. the Philadelphia's controversial method of building their team, where they were terrible for five years, is that then every single postseason, every single year becomes like a referendum on this like ideological commitment, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's not just like, oh, you lost. It's like, this was another failure, a failure for your approach to basketball, you know? Yes. Which the process was shit. I I am happy to see it fail. (laughs) Sorry, Peter. (laughs) I disagree. I think they're now one of the top five teams in the league and that's, Basically, as much as you can hope for, you have to admit, you have to hope your superstars pan out, and they didn't. You know, Ben Simmons. Let's do another fifteen minutes of this. <laughs> All right, today's episode is about textualism. Textualism is defined in the dictionary as a method of interpreting laws that focuses exclusively or near exclusively on the text of the law. <laughs> As opposed to things like the purpose of the law, the legislative history of the law, things like that. The proliferation of textualism has resulted in a huge number of legal opinions involving judges combing through the dictionary, finding the definitions of words that no normal human being would need to be defined. And it's been, I think, one of the worst things to happen to law students, really since the invention of the common law, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I like that the dictionary definition of textualism still didn't say enough about it that we need to do a whole episode. So maybe that interpretive method actually isn't sufficient for living in the world. Dictionary definitions, just just not enough. That's true. Although that wasn't really the dictionary definition. I just made it up. (laughs) Well, so are dictionary definitions. So (laughs) it's true. Call me Miriam, baby. So although elements of textualism have always existed in the interpretation of the law, it has only crystallized into its current form in American legal thought in the past half century or so. It has since wound its way into the collective consciousness of the legal profession and is now one of the profession's most dominant forms of analysis. And most importantly, it has been along the way weaponized by conservatives who have found it a useful tool for advancing their agenda. So we thought it would be helpful to go over what exactly textualism is, why it has risen to prominence, how conservatives use it to their advantage, and why it is just the dumbest shit. (laughs) So, you know, I think the first thing to do is to talk about what are the purported benefits of textualism? 
Taking a step back, textualism is very simply the theory that laws should be interpreted based on the text itself and the text alone. This can manifest in a lot of ways, but the basic rule is that if the meaning of the text is clear, then you must abide by the text without considering other sources. Right. That means you don't consider the purpose of the law. You don't consider the legislative history, which are like the records of what uh, the Congress people all said and wrote when they were drafting and arguing about the law. None of that shit. So this approach serves multiple purposes. But the big one is that it ostensibly limits the influence of the judge's personal politics and preferences on the outcomes of cases. (laughs) They are bound by the text, so they are not allowed to do politics. There are a number of other purported benefits. It supposedly provides more certainty and consistency in outcomes, for example. Um, And according to textualists, approaches like trying to interpret laws by relying on the purpose of the law are too vague, right, And, and too subject to personal biases. So they should be discarded. Yeah. So, look, obviously, textualism in its most skeletal form has been like a part of interpreting the law forever. Right. Like you have to read the law. You have like the words like matter. Sure. Yes. Laws are written down and it's important to read them. But uh, the more aggressive, like strict forms of textualism that are around today they're, and their dogmatic adherence are like unique to the modern conservative legal movement. Yeah, totally. And so I thought that I would talk a little bit about the history of the modern textualist movement. But while we are talking about history, I want to point out something that I think is important. And that is that lawyers are not smart or innovative. Okay, they don't have good ideas. This is not a profession of good ideas. Okay, (laughs) textualism is not some like pure distillation of law. And it's not even like that old or like traditional and interpretive method. So, you know, obviously the concept, like Michael just said, the concept of like reading the text is a pretty fucking basic tool for comprehension. But strictly adhering to a statutory text-based analysis at the exclusion of other kinds of analysis of other kinds of texts, like legislative history Mm -hmm. and the intent of a law, all of that stuff, that's not like some old traditional way of looking at the law. I think it's important to highlight because especially when Justice Scalia comes up, I think people assume he was some sort of like expert legal historian. He was concerned with the founders and their understandings of the Constitution, and he purported to know a lot about all of that shit. But But his theories of legal interpretation and how to make meaning of the law as a judge, that's it's made up. Right. It's not hearkening back to something old and like wise, like he would have had us believe. Really, before Antonin Scalia came to prominence as a judge, American judges, including justices on the Supreme Court, were by and large using extra textual considerations. They were using lots of information that was not just the text of a law to interpret the law. So a massive consideration in the pre-Scalia era was legislative history and legislative intent. The Supreme Court would look, for example, at what Congress had said when passing a law, at what data had been gathered, at the reasons legislators and committees had given for passing the law in order to make decisions about what the law means and, and how to rule on cases. And so textualists, I think, saw this throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s, and they don't like all that interpretation that judges were doing. Yeah. Um, we'll talk in a little bit about whether or not textualism is like inherently conservative. And this modern textualist movement certainly is. But I think even liberals and I mean liberals like not left or progressive necessarily, but sort of like Mm -hmm. legal institutionalists, right? People who were concerned with separations of power and the Constitution creating a constrained judiciary, like those people included even began to concern themselves academically with the role of the court at this time. It's a reaction in a lot of ways, I think, to 
the cover being blown on on lawmaking and law interpreting as inherently political, right? right? It's fundamentally political. In the 1930s, the Supreme Court was striking down all of FDR's New Deal legislation, and then he threatened to pack the court, and then they changed their minds, right? And after that, we have the civil rights movement and movements for social progress and social justice, where all of the sudden, like the 14th Amendment, for example, is being interpreted more expansively than certainly anyone in the Reconstruction era could have imagined. And so after all of this stuff where it's like clear that actually interpreting law is political, actually the role of judges is political, what you get is a bunch of uh, legal scholars being like, hey, what's up with that? We don't like this. Yeah, it's probably not a coincidence that like they decided it was a good idea to start ignoring the purpose of the law as soon as the purpose of the laws was like, anti-racist. Right. 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 The timing is just crazy. What a coincidence. (laughs) Yeah. And if you'd like to know more about that, you could read something about a hot topic in the news a lot Mm -hmm. recently Mm -hmm. called critical race theory. (gasps) (laughs) My kindergarten class didn't have critical race theory. (laughs) I missed it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, now, obviously, Kamala Harris is teaching critical race theory in (laughs) the White House itself. So everyone's going to (laughs) know. Excellent. I'm excited. <laughs> so remember, I said lawyers, they're not smart. They they do not have good ideas. And so textualism, whether ideologically conservative or not, is about limiting what it is that judges are interpreting. Right. Mm-hmm. Modern textualism says do not interpret legislative history because then it's the judge's interpretation of legislative history. Mm-hmm. Don't interpret legislative intent because the risk is that the judge's own policy preferences and subjective considerations are poisoning that investigation and it becomes judicial intent, not legislative intent. And so, you know, modern textualists would say that's not what a judge's job is. And it's a violation of the separation of powers because a judge is using their own subjective interpretation methods. Yeah, you're actually under arrest if you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Which would mean that the judge is making law, not Congress. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So Peter's joking that you're under arrest or or whatever, but the most strict new textualists will literally say, looking at legislative history, considering congressional intent, what the bill's authors thought is unconstitutional. What in the law you call bicameralism and presentment, right? What was presented to the president for signing, what passed the houses is the law itself, the words on paper. And that's all you can look at. And and anything else is like out of bounds, literally illegal (laughs) to look at. And so who do we have to thank for making this the sort of dominant legislative interpretation theory of our time? It's fucking Antonin Scalia. Who else, baby? (laughs) He's the guy who brings this method to the forefront. And, you know, this dumbass, he had one thing, one bit, one joke, and he used it over and over and over and over and over again until people (laughs) believed him, right? Scalia really brought this kind of like loud but hollow wariness for judicial discretion and judicial activism to all of his jobs. He brought it to his academic posts, his government positions, and then finally his judicial appointments. And he was screaming nonstop about how all it is that judges should be looking at when they interpret the law is the text of the law. That should be it. So, for example, in 1989, he's on the Supreme Court. He writes a concurring opinion in a case called Blanchard v. Bergeron, in which he's agreeing with the unanimous holding written by Justice White. And a side note that Justice White is largely a conservative justice, you know, known for uh, counseling judicial restraint. But Scalia, in this concurring opinion, is critiquing Justice White's use of legislative history to get to the ruling. Scalia says the Supreme Court shouldn't be using congressional committee reports to illuminate a statute because those kinds of texts are, quote, increasingly unreliable evidence of what the voting members of Congress actually had in mind, end quote. In 1993, there's a case called Connor versus Aniscoff. Again, this is a unanimous decision in which Scalia is writing separately just to criticize the reasoning of the opinion and that the opinion used legislative history. In that opinion, he says, quote, the greatest defect of legislative history is its illegitimacy. We are governed by laws, not by the intentions of legislators. Yeah, they do this very cool thing where they treat the law as if it is 
confined to the text. Right. But in fact, the whole question is whether it is. Right. Right. Yes. The discussion right. is about whether the law is just the text. And they sort of assume their conclusion and make their argument from there. Yeah. And apparently that's been persuasive. <laughs> I, I don't really know yeah. why, because it's such an obvious logical fallacy, as the kids say. <laughs> Before we continue, I do want to correct uh, Rhiannon. Because she said all of the sudden. <laughs> oh, my God. Peter sudden. has been <laughs> telling me that I say all of the sudden. I'm a textualist for with respect years, to all of a for sudden. For years, <laughs> listeners, Peter has been correcting me. Moving on. It is interesting, though, like Justice Kagan sort of infamously said, we're all textualists now. Mm-hmm. And there is a degree to which like Scalia has won and textualism is like the dominant mode of statutory interpretation, Mm -hmm. but it is a soft textualism. And and in this way, like the hardliners kind of lost because the majority of justices on the Supreme Court will look at legislative purpose. They will look at legislative intent pretty regularly whenever there's an ambiguity in the law and ambiguity in the language, right? That's how they'll resolve those ambiguities. And a lot of times- you know, it's not hard to find ambiguities. It's not hard right. to like reason your way into saying, oh, the phrasing here is ambiguous. Let's look at what Congress said. Right. Let's look at what the bill's drafters mm-hmm. said. Like, so it's a half victory. Yeah. It has its downstream effects for sure. But Scalia would be very angry to see Roberts and Kavanaugh and Alito, you know, citing legislative history and talking about legislative purpose, which they do. Right. Right. So one of the most common questions about textualism is why is it associated with conservatism? Right. Is it actually conservative? Is the unbiased application of textualist principles actually something that favors one ideology over the other? Or is that sort of a myth? Right. I think the short answer from my perspective is that this is the wrong question. The real question is, is there actually such a thing as the unbiased application of textualist principles? Right. Hmm. Are there actually always objectively correct answers when you're trying to read precisely what the words in a law mean across multiple different contexts and circumstances? I'd say that the answer to that is no. Language is too uncertain and dynamic to have concrete singular meanings at all times. And so the question is textualism inherently conservative, is missing the point. But what we do know is that regardless of whether textualism is conservative in theory, it's definitely conservative in practice, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Some people have argued that more strict and literal reading of laws tends to limit the power of government because it places a limit on the power the government wields through lawmaking almost inherently. Mm And it prevents our understanding of what laws mean from evolving with the time. So more progressive understandings of the law's implications are often rejected. So that might go some way toward explaining why textualism seems to favor conservatives. In 2005, a couple of professors, James Brudney and Corey Distlier, I'm sure I messed up one of those names, conducted a detailed study in the application of textualism to interpreting laws and found that textualist analysis led to overwhelming conservative results, at least in the workplace law context. They also concluded that textualist analysis was very frequently applied, quote, in ideologically slanted ways, unquote. Well, well, well. Who would have thought? Who would have (laughs) thought? So I think that the reality is probably that textualism is not particularly conservative. It is simply something that has come to be utilized by conservatives to get where they need to go. And I think it's maybe more useful to them than liberals because it aligns with some of their tendencies, right? They, more than the liberals, have a willingness to sort of run something into the ground via pedantry and technicalities, if the need be. That's not really something you see an appetite for on the left and among liberal jurists. Yeah. And, you know, it's like a tool that allows conservative judges and justices to, like, nitpick laws to death. That's right. Right? Like... Every little error is a reason to make the law less effective Yeah, because, you know, lawmaking and the U.S. code is really complicated. There's like a fucking ton of statutes. They have a ton of subparts and cross references and stupid stilted language because they're written by morons. And 
it's very easy if you want to make those laws less effective, if you want to make them useless, to find ways to do that, right? If your goal isn't to like make government work, well, textualism is great at making government inoperative. Right. It doesn't have to be that way, but it requires a different ideological bent. And that's, you know, the conservatives have their goals and it's a good tool for, you know, reaching those goals. That's right. The last thing I want to say about this is that even if you think that textualism objectively applied is inherently conservative, that doesn't mean conservatives are using it in good faith, right? Choosing a mode of analysis because it leads to conservative conclusions isn't any more honest or good faith than manipulating a mode of analysis to make it reach those conclusions, right? Right, yeah. I don't really see the purpose of trying to, like, get to the bottom of this. Is this really conservative? It doesn't matter. It's not good faith either way. Right. Right. So I think it's time we start talking a little bit more in depth about our critique of textualism. Our fundamental critique of textualism is that it does not solve the problem it claims to solve. Textualists claim that they are bringing objectivity to the table and thereby ridding us of the biases of judges that plague other types of interpretation. But textual interpretation is neither objective nor free from bias. So first, you know, textualism does not necessarily lead you to clear answers, right? Text is not math. Reasonable minds can and do disagree on what certain text means. Yeah. And (laughs) nothing, I think, highlights this point more than the canons of construction. And, Re, you took the bullet on this one, didn't you? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you looked into the canons of construction. Oof. Yeah. I don't know why I volunteered for this section. I might have been, um, let's say, not sober. But yeah, here we are. Okay, canons of construction. So there's a whole field, basically, of legal academia. Tons of professors study this shit. It's just about studying the different ways you can interpret and make meaning out of laws. Yeah. Obviously, the text of a law is not always clear. Words have different meanings in different contexts. And I also would bet all of the hundreds of dollars I have to my name right now that my dog, Denver, is smarter than many members of Congress who are drafting this legislation. Right. (laughs) So that's why you have legal cases where judges have to interpret things. Words and the mere text of a statute without anything else don't get you where you need to go a lot of the time. So actually, there is a whole list of ways that laws can be interpreted, and these are called canons of construction. These are methods of interpretation for what to do when laws are contradictory or or confusing. So, you know, just want to note that textualism is just one way to interpret laws, and we will talk shortly about some examples where, where textualism alone doesn't get you a clear answer. Often, you are using multiple canons of construction simultaneously. So, you know, just to give some examples of of the canons, there are textual canons, which are about how to read the words and make meaning of the words in a statute. There are substantive canons that are rules about interpreting sort of broader meanings based on policy preferences. Constitutional values. Constitutional values. That's right. All kinds of canons. And the point is that certain problems are always going to come up in the business of interpreting laws. And so we need rules to go by that we all agree on because the text alone isn't going to get you what you need all the time. So, for example, there's a rule, a canon of construction called the rule against surplusage. And it's a classic. Yes. The rule against yes. surplusage just means that where one reading of a statute would make one part of the statute redundant or even one word right. or even one word of the statute redundant and another reading would avoid that redundancy, then the judge or whoever's interpreting the statute there should go with the reading that avoids the redundancy. Mm-hmm. Right. We'll, we'll talk about why that's really dumb later. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's also a rule, for example, called the rule of lenity. This is a substantive rule of construction. And it's a rule that says that when a criminal law is ambiguous, when it's unclear what you're supposed to do just based on the text of a criminal law, the judge should adopt the interpretation of the law that is more favorable to the defendant. Yeah, that's got to be the most ignored canon of construction. (laughs) Yes. Well, that's that's the thing about these, right? Like there's ambiguity and there's ambiguity, right? Like a judge can decide whether or not something is ambiguous. And maybe in one instance, it's like if 70% of people would take one reading and 30% would take another, they'd say that's ambiguous. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to like laws that favor criminal defendants, it's going to be much harder to determine that the law is ambiguous, right? It's got to be more like 50-50. That's right. Like nobody, you could never get any sort of rough agreement on the meaning of the law, which goes to show like the limits of this stuff. That's right. I mean, the, you know, the bottom line for me with the canons of construction is like, they're like dozens, maybe hundreds of these rules and guidelines Mm -hmm. for like what to do when the text of the law is a little bit vague. Like, how do you interpret the text? When the question is, how do you interpret the text? And you're trying to like, seek out objectivity and clear answers. And what you do is create dozens of rules, which Mm -hmm. are themselves often ambiguous and frequently contradictory. And you stack those atop the text of the law. And then you're like, oh, we've solved that problem. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I'm not so sure that you've accomplished anything much. There's this legal realist in the, I think the 50s, Carl Llewellyn, who sort of infamously wrote this article about how like every canon of construction has a counter canon that means the opposite, right? right? right. And like a, a judge could like pick and choose which ones they like the best. And then more recently, there have been some articles by people saying like, actually, Llewellyn is wrong and you can like harmonize the canons so that they're not actually contradictory. And these assholes can't even agree right. <laughs> on the meaning of the canons right. themselves, yeah. let yeah. alone the text that they're supposed to, you know, right. use the canons to be interpreting. Like the idea that this gives you solid answers, it's fantasy. Yeah. It's, it's total fantasy. That's yeah. Right. And if you, if anyone wants a thorough takedown of the canons of construction, uh, Richard Posner published a mm-hmm. review of Antonin Scalia's book about interpreting the law in about 2012 or so in the New Republic. Very good review and really sort of got to Scalia. Yes. His co-author wrote a response, which was wholly inadequate, also published in The New Republic, uh, Fair and Balanced. (laughs) So to um, show you a little how ridiculous the canons are and how expansive they are as well, we're going to play a little game where I, an expert in the canons (laughs) of construction... will be reading a list of canons for Peter and Rhiannon to guess whether or not they are real or fake. Okay. Some of them will be real canons of construction and some of them will be fake. Let's play a game. The saw thing. I thought it was like, would you like to play a game or is it let's play a game? You can't hit the copyrighted one. So uh, you got to. Yes. <laughs> saw nine. <laughs> Jigsaw reads off canons of construction <laughs> and the person just kills themselves immediately. <laughs> Uh, all right. Canon number one, Charming Betsy. Oh, fuck off. Come is that on, a man. canon of construction? <laughs> this is so ridiculous that it seems like it has to be. It's so real. I'm going to yes. say real. Yeah, that's that's correct. Fuck it's yeah. a real canon. Oh my it's based on a case from, I think, the 1800s that says national statute should be construed so as not to conflict with international law. Charming Betsy was a was a ship. Huh. Okay, well, explain the Iraq War to me then, Betsy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Nositer Associus. Ooh, that sounds real, which makes me think maybe it's fake. I'm going with fake. <laughs> it sounds like a Harry Potter magic trick. <laughs> that is real. That is what? Real. <laughs> <laughs> Associus. Nociter Associus is Latin for something like birds of a feather flock together. Oh, fuck off. Shit, okay. Where it's like where you have a list of items and one is ambiguous. Okay. It should yeah, be yeah. interpreted to mean like similar to the rest of the list. Right, right. God, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Expressio in medium cum lac capra. I wish I had taken Latin. Expressio. 
is Latin for expression or express. I'm almost positive. I'm going to say this is real. What do you think, Randy? I'm going to say fake. It's fake. Yes! <laughs> this was a competition and I won. There is a one that's expressio unius est exclusio alturius, oh, which is like. Yeah, of, of course. That is what I thought you said. <laughs> no, it was hard, and I'm smarter than Peter, and I got it right on the harder one. It's got to do with like when things are included, they assume to be excluded. I think this is supposedly a Latin translation for medium espresso with goat milk. Is <laughs> 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 what I said. <laughs> so I don't know. Okay, one more. All right, last one. Tiebreaker. The Indian canon. Real. It's real for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is real. <laughs> yes. Oh my There's God. actually a whole bunch of Indian canons. There's like Fuck. a lot of them. <laughs> as soon as I heard how racist that was come out of your mouth, I was like, that's real. Right. That's gotta yeah, be real. It had to be, right? I think there's a whole section of Indian canons in my textbook. And oh God. <laughs> but there is one titular one. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather play any of the Saw games than that again. <laughs> All right. Um, that was enough fun. <laughs> back to business. <laughs> All right. Back to the intellectual stuff that mm-hmm. we are so good at. Yeah. So, you know, you have the fact that the text is rarely clear. And attempts to create rules to find clarity in the text end up being a maze of contradictions and nonsense. But another problem is that even when the text of the law is clear, it's not always apparent what the reasonable outcome should be. There's a famous hypothetical that we've discussed on the podcast before. A law says that no person may bring a vehicle into the park. A medical emergency occurs and an ambulance goes into the park to save a person's life. Should the driver be held liable under the law? The strict textualist answer is yes, right? No vehicles in the park. Right. Ambulance is a vehicle, done and done. Right. If you're a purposivist, if you believe that the purpose of the law is something that you should maybe be concerned with, you might not hold him liable because holding him liable does absolutely nothing to further the general principle the law is meant to upheld, right? Textualism deprives you of that flexibility. It's a situation where everyone knows that the literal meaning of the law is one thing. It's just that that thing is something that just about everyone on Earth would agree leads you to an unreasonable place in this one circumstance. Right. And rather than having put the burden on Congress or whoever to anticipate that circumstance, perhaps a judge can just say, well, no, that would be stupid. Right. 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 A more real world example is a 1990 case from the Seventh Circuit called U.S. v. Marshall. This is a case where some guys got convicted of possession of LSD. And the issue was how much LSD they should be convicted for having. The law said that the sentence should be based on the weight of the, quote, mixture or substance the LSD was in. The purpose of that language was that lots of illegal drugs are cut with legal substances, right? Right, So if someone mixes some detergent into their cocaine uh, to dilute it a little bit, they're sentenced on the weight of the whole concoction, right? Not just the cocaine. You don't have to figure out what's real and what's not exactly. Right. But in this case, the LSD was put on blotter paper. For those who were not cool in college... LSD is a liquid that is effective in very small amounts. We're talking like one drop out of an eyedropper amounts. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So people will place droplets of it onto paper, which they then put on their tongues for a bit in order to absorb the drug from the paper into their body. So the question was, does the weight of the paper that the LSD was on count for purposes of sentencing these guys? This is a big deal because the weight of the paper is far more than the LSD itself. Right, right. Right. And the Seventh Circuit held that according to the dictionary definition, the paper and the LSD together constituted a mixture. And therefore, the men were sentenced based on the total weight of the paper. Right. So possessing one dose of LSD on blotter paper gets you the same sentence as like possessing like Many kilos of cocaine. <laughs> right. Basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is a great example of both of the primary flaws with textualist analysis. First, 
the term mixture is super vague. To pretend right. that there is a clear answer to whether LSD soaked into blotter paper is a mixture is just malpractice. I mean, just <laughs> right. absolutely right. malpractice. To be so certain of it that you'd be comfortable sentencing someone to decades in prison is inhuman. Inhuman shit. Right. Yeah. And second, even if you pretend that the term mixture does clearly include LSD soaked into paper, it's still a situation where reading the text literally is absurd, right? This is completely divorced mm -hmm. from the purpose of the law, and it results in a horrifying outcome that does not comport with common sense. What is right. the point of adhering to the strict text here other than to make some sort of statement about the rigid inflexibility of the law, right? Why is that rigid interpretive theory worth more than the human beings whose lives it is like actually ruining in real life? That's right. And even um, Richard Posner, who dissented in that case, basically took the position that, you know, textualism is quite useful, but this is stupid. And there should be a rule right. where we say this has gotten too stupid. Right. <laughs> right. 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 You know, there's a very good this is like right out of literally a textbook, but this doctorate in linguistics, Lawrence Solon, analyzed this case. And and I just really like his analysis of it. And I just kind of want to read it because I, I think it's illuminating. Give it to us, our scholar. Yeah. He says, Colin, the blotter paper impregnated with LSD, a mixture seems odd for the same reason that it seems odd to call a pancake soaked with syrup, a pancake syrup mixture, <laughs> or to call a wet towel, a water cotton mixture. Or to call a towel that has been used to dry one's face during a tennis game, a cotton sweat mixture, or later after the sweat is dried, a cotton salt mixture. The last two I would call a wet towel and a dirty towel, <laughs> respectively. <laughs> In all these examples, both substances have kept their character in a chemical sense, but one of the substances seems to have kept too much of its character for us to feel natural calling the term a mixture. Yeah. It's like you read that and you're like, yeah, man, this is fucking stupid. Right. This isn't the way people use language at all. And that's the whole point of dumb. textualism. Right. The whole idea is like, how would a normal person read and understand this word, this language, this law? And they can't even do that. Right. They, they can't do it right. They're not good at it from some any objective sense. Yeah. Uh, because they're such fucking freaks, they don't know how <laughs> normal people read and, and respond right. to to language. Right. And also, in addition to that, a lot of times, like the lack of clarity is like the result of unforeseen circumstances. Then it is like inaccuracies in drafting or Congress being like lazy, right? Like, right. It it forces Congress to anticipate like unreasonable and like incalculable number of situations and circumstances. Totally. And additionally, it doesn't engage with the way laws are written, which is, I think, extremely important because textualists say they're, you know, the faithful agents of Congress and the way you're their faithful agent is by giving meaning to the words they pass, the words they wrote, the words they sign into law. But the way laws are written, it's not one dude you know, pouring over each word, making sure each word has a specific perfect meaning. Right. It's like maybe a few legislative aides from one congressman, you know, and then one senator or a group of senators, they draft competing bills in the House and the Senate that are going to be different. And then those go to committee where more people and more aides get their hands on them and change them. Then there's like horse trading. Provisions are added. Provisions are deleted in order to gain votes. Then it gets amendments. You know, once it's clear it's going to pass, opponents might try to put in a poison pill to make it unappealing. And other people might see a chance to like free ride and get something that they've wanted passed into law tacked onto it. This bill that's destined for the president's desk. And all of a sudden, what's actually passed is this big mishmash of like dozens of different lawmakers' visions about what the law could and should be. Right. And it's a mess. And, and of course it's a mess. And of course there are redundant words. And of course there are like minor errors or unforeseen cross-references that don't make total sense because – in addition, all this stuff is like referencing the U.S. code, which is its own standalone massive 
tome right. of laws that this needs to be put into. So it's not to mention that legislators drafting legislation know about certain ambiguities in the law and expect and predict that once it's passed, that the court will figure it out. Right. Right. The court will interpret it right. and make meaning of any ambiguities that are there. Yeah. We can't decide in advance every single circumstance. Right. And that's what like judicial discretion is for. But textualism wants to deny all that. It treats Congress like this omniscient legal god, <laughs> you know, right. that could right. never make mistakes, right. that could never even slightly have, you know, any inaccuracies at all. Right. And that's the only way to read law is assuming that that's how Congress yeah. behaves, which is the exact opposite of how Congress behaves. So it's like totally divorced from reality. Right. So there's a recent case, in fact, dropped about a week ago at the time of recording about the First Step Act, Terry v. United States, uh, where the First Step Act, which is, you know, this criminal justice reform bill passed a couple of years ago. And one of the things it does is allow for parity uh, across different types of cocaine. Right. Mm -hmm. Famously, in uh, criminal justice reform circles, especially crack sentences were considerably worse than cocaine sentences, despite it not being more dangerous right. or anything. Maybe due to racism. You know, that's one right, theory right. that's been floated. Right. <laughs> and so this bill got rid of that to at least to a large degree. And. Then the, a question arose of how retroactive it was. And someone brought a case saying there should be some retroactive applicability in his case. And the Supreme Court said, no, the literal reading of the law does not allow that. Uh, this is a 9-0 decision, by the way. And Sotomayor wrote a concurrence that was like, well, hopefully Congress will change this. It's like, <laughs> come on, right, dude. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to bring up this because I think it brings me to a related point, which is when Congress fucks up writing a law and doesn't anticipate every circumstance, it's not Congress that pays the price. That's right. It's some fucking right. guy who had a crack cocaine sentence that was grossly unjust. Right. 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 And those are the people bearing the burden of this whole sort of like, well, right, rewrite. Why don't you write the law better? Right. You know? It's not like Congress yeah. gets punished for not writing it correctly. People like that do. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this case for a little bit. And it's one thing I keep coming back to is, and I, I don't want to introduce like a, a separate topic too much, but I saw someone compare originalism, which is like this idea that, you know, laws should be interpreted and especially the constitution should be interpreted the way it was understood at the time it was first passed, Right. They said, well, like, look, the dinosaurs where for years, for decades, we didn't know they had uh, feathers. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And Greek and Roman columns and statues were actually very colorful and painted. But we didn't know that because in the vast majority of cases, all the paint decayed. Yeah. And so we thought they were like these pristine, white, you know, beautiful. Yeah. Which is the entire reason that Washington, D.C. looks like shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and so like the, you know, the analogy is like, well, when you're doing originalism, you're doing this legal history, you're sort of like missing this important stuff that like gives not just like important character, but gives like meaning to the language. Right. But here's the thing about textualism. It's like making that same error. But without having the vagaries of history to blame for it, right? Yeah, self-imposed. It's like looking at a painted statue right now and being like, that's a white statue. Right. <laughs> that's right. a right. white marble statue. Right. And I don't see any paint on it at all. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, I think this brings us to our final point, which is that maybe the textualists are a little bit hypocritical about it sometimes. Now, we're not sure, but we put Re on the case. <laughs> yep. You know, many, many examples, obviously, of textualist opinions written by judges all over the country, but certainly by Supreme Court justices in which they purport to be using sort of strict textualist analysis to reach the holding. And, you know, one extremely 
hypocritical example of a supposed textualist writing a majority opinion that is absolutely incomprehensible through a textualist lens is Antonin Scalia himself. He wrote the majority in a case called Castle Rock Mm -hmm. versus Gonzalez. If you've been listening for a long time, you're familiar with that case. We did an early episode on it. I want to say it was in our first 10 episodes, maybe. This was a case about a woman whose children were kidnapped and murdered by her estranged husband. If you remember, the woman, Jessica Gonzalez, had a restraining order in place against her husband. But the Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Scalia, said that the police did not have to enforce that restraining order. And therefore, her constitutional rights had not been violated. And so just looking for the textualist analysis here from the textualist God himself, Scalia, the state law at issue in that case said, quote, a peace officer shall arrest or seek a warrant for anyone who had a report of violating a restraining order. Now, we'll read that again. A peace officer shall arrest or seek a warrant. That word, that text of the statute says shall, not can, not a police officer can arrest. Sounds pretty mandatory. Not should, not at a police officer's earliest convenience can maybe try to knock on the door. That fucking sentence says shall, okay? And the textualist titan himself Antonin Scalia said that the word shall means maybe or maybe not. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, what he said was there's a long tradition in this country of police not having to do this. (laughs) Right. That's right. (laughs) Right. Which is great because it's also ignoring the purpose of the law. Which was to correct that tradition. Right. (laughs) Right. The entire purpose of the law was to mandate it because of the tradition of ignoring such things and not enforcing restraining orders. So Scalia manages to dodge both primary schools of interpretation all at once. Incredible. That's right. Another example, uh, another case we covered about a year ago, actually, that's Bostock versus Clayton County. This was the case from last year, the 2020 term that said that Title VII, which protects people from discrimination in employment, also protects from discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So the majority opinion was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, who, despite being like a twisted little loser with fart breath, he says <laughs> that <laughs> he says that the textualist interpretation of Title VII in this case is clear. He said, if the text of Title VII says that you are protected from discrimination on the basis of sex, then sexual orientation and gender identity are covered, too, because those kinds of discrimination are all about sex stereotypes and sex expectations. Right. Mm-hmm. Discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is discrimination on the basis of sex, right. according to Justice Gorsuch. And so right. obviously that was a good opinion. Right. That was a win for LGBTQ rights. But, you know, this is a conservative justice and mm-hmm. conservatives have likewise used text to say that you are not protected from these forms of discrimination, right? And Alito (laughs) filed a 100-page dissent where he's like, how dare you? This is outrageous and really twists. I mean, he claims he's doing textualist analysis to some degree, too. But what he was really arguing was that the legislators at the time would have never understood this to cover... Uh, discrimination against LGBT people, right? Right, right. The people who wrote Title VII back in the 60s would not have understood it as protecting people in their place of work from this kind of discrimination. Yeah, and, you know, what he was trying to say was like, well, this is a textualist analysis because it's about what the text would have meant to the people drafting it, but it's really inextricable from the purpose of the law uh, and what the purpose of the law is. It's a a purpose... it's a purposivist. Purposivist. Yeah, I'm the drunk it, one here. Yeah, it's I. I have not gotten a lot of sleep in the last several days. Uh, it's a purposivistic analysis, right? right? And you know, multiple conservatives signed on to it. Yeah, Thomas signed on to it. You know, these people abandon their principles on a fucking whim. Yeah, or their ostensible principles. You know, their real principles are just being homophobic, and they stick with that one pretty pretty tight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> that was a regular. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, if these cases are a little too anecdotal to convince you, that study of Supreme Court opinions I mentioned earlier is as close to conclusive proof as we're likely to get. They found in their study of the court under Chief Justice Rehnquist that the patterns they saw, quote, suggest that for an identifiable subset of divisive cases, the canons of construction are being used by the Rehnquist court to help produce a judicially desired set of policies, ignoring or sacrificing legislatively expressed preferences in the process, unquote. In other words, conservatives were leveraging textualist analysis to reach conservative conclusions, undermining the will of the legislature in the process. Conservative lawmaking. Right. That's right. So I don't want this episode to just be a recounting of why textualism is bullshit. I think it's just as important before we wrap up to talk about why it's useful to conservatives. Textualism and all of the formalistic rules that conservatives utilize to reach the conservative outcomes they want is first and foremost about obfuscation. Right. Textualism is a method for conservatives to create the impression of an objective and therefore unassailable outcome. It is about imposing a veneer of objectivity and thoughtfulness over their political preference. Textualism is almost the perfect antithesis of what we stand for, I think. Mm -hmm. Law is not a set of mandates from heaven that must be obeyed or else society will fall apart. It's a set of rules and principles that reflect how we, normatively speaking, want to structure society. Judges, just like politicians, have to make choices about what their priorities are. And textualism, just like any other methodology for interpreting the law, reflects a choice about what should and should not be prioritized yes. in the application of the law. It wants to masquerade as if it is neutral, but ignoring the purpose of a law is not neutral. Ignoring the human toll of reading a drug sentencing law hyperliterally is not neutral. These are moral and ideological choices that judges make. And we should hold them and ourselves accountable for making them. Mm -hmm. That's right. Next week, it is a brand new case just dropped. Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid, where the court said that union organizers can't go onto corporate farmlands anymore because uh, apparently that violates the Constitution. <laughs> Thank you for supporting us on... Patreon. Check out your, the Patreon feed for events, book club stuff. Michael will maybe make some cocktails on a Zoom at some point in the future. Uh, I haven't done anything yet, but once I think of something that I can do, there will be Peter events too. Peter talks crypto. <laughs> crypto investing seminars with me. Only down $1,000 today. <laughs> One of my best days and weeks. <laughs> Patreon.com slash 54pod. Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. All spelled out. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. And our theme song is by Spatial Relations. 